All right, good morning, Storehouse. Oh man, y'all so awake, I can tell. My name is Nathaniel, I'm the missions guy here, and so I'm glad to be with y'all. Uh, on the last Sunday of the year, how crazy is that? I can't believe that 2019 is already here. Uh, and we uh, are also having our last Sunday in the sermon series that we've been in uh, for the past month, uh, Glory, the Person and Work of Jesus Christ. And so we're wrapping that series up today. It's the last uh, Sunday. There's a lot of last things, right? A lot of last things happening. And so during this series, what we've talked about so far has been just the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we've talked about Jesus as God. We've talked about uh, how Jesus prays and how he teaches, how he restores, he intercedes, and then he saves this past uh, uh, Christmas Eve service. And today, we're going to talk about something fitting for today, being the last Sunday. We're going to talk about Jesus' last words. And last words are really interesting. Uh, I think, uh, not just last words, but last things in general, they fascinated us, right? I mean, I went online and I was like, all right, famous people's last words, and there's a lot about it. (laughs) Uh, There's so many different things, uh, because we we're fascinated by it. It's, it's, it's interesting to think of this is the very last thing that somebody said. This is the very last thing that somebody did. Um, and so as I was looking through them, though, I saw a few just kind of interesting ones. Uh, Groucho Marx, an entertainer, he said on his deathbed right before he passed away, die, my dear. Why, that's the last thing I'd do. And then Charles Gustman said uh, he was a script writer for television shows and he said, uh, as, he was, as he was dying to his wife, he said, and now a word from our sponsor. And then he went. And so, you know, sometimes it's kind of funny, and you can kind of see the character of the people, you know, depending on what they say and kind of how they go. Uh, and then it's not always the, so lighthearted, though, right? Uh, we see that Amy Winehouse, who died very young from alcohol poisoning, uh, she said, I don't want to die right before she went. And then T.S. Eliot, who's an amazing American poet, he simply whispered Valerie, his wife's name, on his deathbed, and, and then he passed away. A survey in 2015 said that 83% of, the, of last words are imparting some kind of wisdom or advice to a loved one. 83% advice or wisdom. And that's interesting to me, though it makes sense thinking about my own you know, life, and, and my grandfather died when... I was in uh, high school, and uh, he, he did the same thing. Uh, I, I don't know what he said because it was to my dad, uh, who is his only son, uh, and they were in the room alone, but dad told me that you know, he just kind of spoke into his life and, and gave him some, some wisdom about you know, just loving on his family and, and spending time, and that, that's all I know about that conversation, but it, it holds to this. You know, it's imparting some kind of wisdom, some kind of advice. And we see in Acts 1.8, which is the passage that we're going to be in today, we see in Acts 1.8 that Christ is saying his last words before he ascends into heaven to the disciples, to the early church. And I can imagine him at this moment, he, he's on this hill with these dudes, and uh, they're just hanging out, you know, having a picnic or whatever. And, you know, I don't know if the apostles knew that he was about to go into heaven, or maybe they did, maybe I told them. Um, but Christ knew. And I can imagine him kind of just like leaning a little bit and saying, all right, guys, listen up. I got one last thing to tell you. This is it. This, this, is, this is something important, so you need to listen. You need to listen closely. And he says, 
In Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And those were the last things that Jesus said to the apostles because then he ascended into heaven. And see, he wasn't saying this out of like a moment of surprise. He, he's intentionally said these words knowing they were going to be the last things that he said. It's not like they were hanging out and then all of a sudden he starts floating up and he's like, oh crap, crap guys, I got all these stuff to say to you still. And he starts like saying this stuff. No, that's not it. He, he, knew, and he knew that he was going. And so he intentionally said on purpose that this is the last thing I want you to hear from me. And so if it's the last thing that Christ said intentionally, it needs to be something that we take seriously and we need to understand clearly. So before we move on, let's pray for our time today. Lord, thank you so much for everything that you've done for us. Thank you for 2018 and just the amazing year that it was. Uh, there's you know, a lot of stuff that's happened, both good and bad, uh, and yet through it all we see that you are in control and that your glory will be shown in all things and that we can count on you for all things. Thank you for today and the opportunity to be able to share your word, and I ask that you please speak through me. Don't let my words come out, but Holy Spirit, rather uh, use me to say the message that you have this morning. We thank you and we praise your name. Amen. So Jesus' last words are important, and they convey a mission and a purpose, and they convey an action. And so we need, to, we need to look into it and see exactly what this mission, this purpose, this action is that he does. And so he sends, in, in this uh, statement, he's sending the apostles out into the world. And at the time, this was uh, the church. He, he's not just sending these you know, dudes out. He's, he's sending the entire church out into the world uh, so that they can teach on what they've seen. To be a witness means that, that they need to talk about the experiences that they've had because they've been with Jesus for the last few years, right? They, they've been experiencing his life, his ministry, and all the amazing things that Jesus had done. And so he's saying, you guys need to go out and, and experience this or tell about your experiences because you have been experiencing this. And so it's, it's for not just those guys there at that moment, but it's for the entire church because he's saying, all of you go out and be witnesses to what you've experienced. And it's key because Jesus is sending the church just as he was sent by the Father. In John 8, 42, it says that Jesus said, if God were your Father, you would have loved me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Jesus himself was sent by the Father, and so in the same way as he was ascending into heaven, he is now saying to the church, I'm handing things over to you. You are now sent, just as I was sent, into the world to be a witness for what God does in the lives of his people. And so we see in this passage in Acts 1, we see four hallmarks of being sent. So we're going to just go through all those, and it's a list because I know you're used to listening to Pastor Marco, and he likes lists, and so this way you're comfortable, even though I'm not him. <laughs> and so first one, the first thing is belief. First hallmark of being sent is belief. Acts 1-3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering, which is the crucifixion, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, 
and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus spent 40 days talking to these guys, proving that he was alive. Because you have to have belief in the gospel. You have to have belief in Jesus Christ, belief in God. And we see that you have to have two things to go with this belief. First, it has to be confident. You have to have a confidence in this belief. And that's why he spent 40 days with them. Because he knew that there was doubt. Well, I mean, he just rose from the dead, right? That doesn't really happen on the daily. And so he knew that these guys were going to be thinking, I don't really know about this. And then some of them even thought, oh, like he's a ghost. Like this is, you know, something completely different. But the key was that he had physically risen from the dead. There was a miraculous miracle here. And so he knew that you know, he had to prove to them so that when he sent them, they would have confidence in everything that he had taught and have confidence in their belief. Luke twenty four thirty six through 42, he says, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? And this is right after he had risen from the dead. See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. But when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and marveling, he said, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before them. And I actually really like this part because, you know, I know the purpose is that, you know, he's showing, you know, I'm not a ghost. I'm actually eating, you know, and digesting and all that. Um, but the way I imagine kind of this going down is, is he's telling them, look, I got the holes in my hands from the crucifixion. This is, this is me. I'm really, really alive. And they're like, their minds are blown, right? And so they're just kind of like in shock, jaw on the ground. And so he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, this is true. This is real. Now please give me a fish taco. I want to you know, see how you do this. And it's amazing for me, oh, it's amazing for me to think of just uh, the way that they were thinking in that moment, right? Like seeing that Christ had risen again, that this guy that they had been following is, was dead. They had watched him suffer one of the worst deaths imaginable, and now they see him alive. They see him alive. And Christ knew that this was going to be something very hard for them to understand. And so he made sure that they were going to be confident in their belief. And doubt happens. I mean, he even says it here. Doubt is going to happen, and we're going to experience doubt even today. I know that I do. There's times when I just don't understand. I don't get it. I don't know what God is doing, and it hurts sometimes. It's just difficult for us to understand. Doubt is going to happen, and Jesus doesn't you know, give them, you know, any flack for that. He doesn't fault them for their doubt. Rather, he spends 40 days showing them the truth. In the same way, you may have doubt today about, you know, something or another, about some part of scripture about God, but yet he is saying, it's okay, let me show you that this is true. And he will walk beside you and he will make sure that your belief is confident and that you do not have to worry about it. And that's exactly what he does, uh, what he did for them and what he does for us. And so your belief needs to be confident and then it also needs to be in the truth. And this is capital T, truth. Because even then, in Acts 1, 6, 
it says that, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Even at this time, this is like the last moments of Christ. They had been with him for years, experiencing and listening to his teaching, and still at the very end, these guys who knew him best still thought he was going to have a political kingdom on earth because they had an idea in their head of what the gospel was, and it was false. Christ was not here to establish a political kingdom or to push you know, the Romans out of, of Israel, but that's what they thought he was there for. And even at the end, they still kind of thought that. And so he's about to go, and they kind of just throw it in one last time. Are you sure you're not here to overthrow the Romans? Because that'd be really nice. We'd, we'd love for that to happen. And Christ is like, no, that's not why I'm here. But it shows us that it is so easy for us to allow our own desires and our own wants to color the gospel into a way, into a certain gospel that we want. We need to make sure that what we believe is the truth and it is aligned with scripture and not what we want it to be. One thing that comes to mind with this that's very common in, um, in our culture today is Proverbs, uh, I think it's like 22.6 or something like that, where if you raise a child in the ways uh, of the Lord, then when he is old, he will, you know, follow it. Um, and that is something that is thrown around in teaching, and it says, you know, oh, if you teach your kids scripture, if you teach them about God, then they will become a Christian someday. Maybe not be now, but they'll, they'll come to know the Lord later or something. And that's not what it's saying. That's us coloring what scripture says in a way that makes us feel good just because we want it to be true. And that proverb is exactly that, a proverb, meaning it's a word of wisdom. It's saying that if you teach your child in the way of the Lord, it is more likely that they will follow him. But it is not a promise. There's a distinction. There's a difference between the two. And yet we want to make it a promise because we want that to happen. And it, and it does happen, you know, your kids may come to know Christ later. That was my own story. I was raised in a Christian home, and yet I did not follow the Lord until college after I was out of the house. And a, well, the primary way that that happened is because my parents had taught me scripture, and they had instilled the Lord in my life. And so I, I was familiar with it. I knew it. And so when that time came that Christ was calling me to him, it was because of that knowledge that they had imparted me and the example that they had set that it, it led me into a fuller understanding that, uh, of the scripture. And so it does happen, and that's why it's in Proverbs, but it's not a promise. And that's just one example. There are so many different ways that we want to make the gospel into exactly what we want it to be, not what it actually is. Because the gospel is truth. It is not your truth. It is the truth. And we need to keep it pure and make sure that we're not putting our own desires into it. And so your belief must be confident and in the truth that we see in Scripture. And the only way that we can make sure that we know that we are not coloring it, that we're staying with what uh, Scripture actually says, know the truth, is through the Holy Spirit. And that's our second thing is power. The Holy Spirit gives you power. 
Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. We're going to camp here uh, for a little bit because I know that the Holy Spirit is kind of a sensitive topic for a lot of people. Um, and as I've, I've lived here now for a little over three years, and I've come to discover that even, especially on the border, uh, there's sensitivity when it comes to the Holy Spirit and things that kind of go, are associated with, with him, which is unfortunate because the Holy Spirit is God, and he is deserving of our praise and our worship. But we need to uh, make sure we have a clear understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. Wayne Grudem says that the Holy Spirit manifests the active presence of God in the world today. See, the Holy Spirit is the one that's doing things. He's the one that's actually interacting and doing things uh, physically in the world as well as supernaturally within us. And this includes many things. Uh, it includes the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, how many of you can say that you honestly have self-control all the time because of your own awesomeness? I can tell you, you do not. <laughs> The only way that we can have self-control or joy or peace like in the fruit of the Spirit is because of the Holy Spirit working supernaturally through us. That's the only way it's even possible. And so that is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And there's other, other things that the Holy Spirit does that you can see throughout Scripture in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans uh, 9, knowledge, wisdom, faith, miracles, prophecy, discernment, tongues, preaching, teaching, service. These are all things that Scripture talks about. And we can't get into the details of all of it because that's going to be an entire sermon series and we won't leave till like 2019. So we need to make sure that uh, we focus in on what are we going to talk about today in, in regard to Acts 1? And that is that the work of the Holy Spirit within the church, it empowers the believer to be able to better serve the kingdom. And you have to understand that it's a complement to Scripture. It is not in replacement of Scripture, and it's not adding to Scripture. It is a complement to Scripture. And the key that, you, that we find in 1 Thessalonians 5 is that it says in 5.19, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, and then hold fast to what is good. Everything that is done through the Holy Spirit or in the name of the Holy Spirit is going to align with Scripture. Nothing is done outside of Scripture. In fact, the Holy Spirit's the one that wrote Scripture. And so you know he's not going to do anything outside of it. And so if you see anyone or you hear anyone teaching or doing anything that is bringing glory to themselves or bringing glory to something other than God, you know it is false. Because the only thing that the Holy Spirit does in his miraculous works and his supernatural gifting is to bring glory upon himself. And so, test everything to Scripture. But do not be afraid of the Holy Spirit and the power that he gives the believer. Because it's only through that power that we're able to even fight the fight. 
We live in a world where we're not fighting against the world, but we're fighting against principalities. Check out Ephesians 6. We're fighting against evil forces in this world as believers. We're the front line. And so the only way that we can combat that is through Scripture, the Holy Word, and the empowerment that the Holy Spirit gives us to understand what Scripture is saying. And then he gives us, in addition to that, even more power to be able to work miraculously in this world. And Jesus is the greatest example of that when you look at his ministry. And we'll talk about that in a second. And so this power that we receive from the Holy Spirit, how do we get it? And that's a, that's a really big question that a lot of people just don't understand the answer to. And so we look in Acts 1, right? That's where we're at today. Acts 1, 4 and 5, it says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So we're talking about the day of Pentecost coming up. And so this is when you get into this teaching of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I know a lot of you have come from a Pentecostal background where there's this teaching in the Pentecostal church, there's this teaching that there's a second experience after conversion, after salvation, a second experience when the Holy Spirit comes upon you or you're baptized in the Holy Spirit and you receive spiritual gifts or more power or or an ability to do works, all these different things, okay? That's what uh, the Pentecostal idea is of a baptism in the Holy Spirit. And so then the question is, is that real? Is that a thing? Is there a second experience that we have after salvation? To be able to answer that question, we need to understand why do Pentecostals say that uh, there is a second experience. Like, where do they even get that from? And where they get it from is they look at this event, the day of Pentecost, because the apostles had believed before the day of Pentecost. I mean, they were with Jesus. They had already submitted to him as Lord. They knew that he was God. So they believed. They already had conversion. And then you look on the day of Pentecost, And then the tongues of flames appear and they receive new power, new ability, and they preach in tongues and and they're able to uh, do miraculous signs and everything else after this, right? And so you see with the apostles a second experience. Even in Jesus, you see that he believed early. I mean, he was God. He knew he was God. You see at the age of 12, he was already teaching in the temple. But then later after that, he was baptized by John the Baptist in water, and then the Holy Spirit came down on him in the form of a dove in Luke 3. And then you see in Luke 4 that he begins his ministry after the temptation in the desert, and he has power in the Holy Spirit. It even says straight in Scripture, in the Spirit he is able to do things that was never possible before. And you see even later in that chapter, it says that he taught with an authority and a power that the people had never seen before. And so you see a secondary experience happening here with Jesus. And so that's where this idea of a baptism of the Holy Spirit, a second experience, that's where that comes from. And so the question then comes, is there a baptism of the Holy Spirit today? And should we be seeking this? We need to understand the work of Jesus Christ, though, 
to understand about these experiences that we see with the apostles and with Jesus. We need to understand what Jesus was doing here. See, Jesus was a transition from the old covenant to a new covenant. See, Jesus was the one to make the switch for us, and he was the one that showed us how it's done. And so you see in the old covenant that the primary manifestation you know, of God was was to uh, appear, you know, uh, on his people, and the Holy Spirit even came, you know, in these moments, and he would maybe, like with David, you know, be with him for a battle, but then he would depart, or he would be with a prophet for a moment, and they would, and they would speak, you know, uh, divinely, but then they would depart, and the Holy Spirit was not with a person all the time. And Jesus brings this new covenant in where the Holy Spirit is dwelling within him and that gives him power and authority that's never been seen before. It's a new way of doing things, a new thing that they had never experienced or seen before. And so when you look at the day of Pentecost, when the apostles received the Holy Spirit, you see that Jesus who did it when he was baptized with John the Baptist and the, and the Holy Spirit came upon him. He had his ministry showing the apostles how ministry should look and how the church should you know, act and perform. And then you see on the day of Pentecost that the apostles are now receiving the Holy Spirit in the same way. And Jesus is saying, I'm handing the reins over to you now, to the church. Now the power that you saw in me, the power that I had to be able to do these things in the Holy Spirit is now being handed to the church because now I'm going to the, you know, the side of the Father and you are going to be the primary means of grace within the world. And so he's handing the reins over to the church. And so that's where you see that, that new experience. But the thing is, now today, we see that the reins have already been handed to us. The Holy Spirit is within the church. The Holy Spirit is empowering the church every single day. And so when you enter into the church, when you become a believer and you, you enter into this relationship with God, you enter into the church and the Holy Spirit is there already. And so the moment of conversion is the moment that you receive the Holy Spirit. Is there a baptism of the Holy Spirit, a secondary experience? And the answer is no, there is not. The moment of salvation is when you are baptized in the Holy Spirit at the same time, if you want to use that language. The Holy Spirit is within the church, and as soon as you enter the church, that's when you get the Holy Spirit. That's when the Holy Spirit enters into you, and you have a new power and authority that's only through him. And there are different levels of maturity. There's going to be different times of your life where you may be even gifted, different spiritual gifts, uh, for example, one is, is preaching. Preaching is written as a spiritual gift in, in Scripture, and it may be something where somebody feels called into ministry later in life. Maybe they've spent their whole life, they're now you know, 45, 50, 60 even, and they know that God is calling them now into the ministry for the first time. And now they begin preaching for the first time you're seeing a development because the Holy Spirit is working within the life of the church and within the believer for his glory alone. It's not for your glory. It's not for my glory. And so it's not our gifts to have. 
It's, it's the Holy Spirit's gifts that he is imparting on the believer for a specific purpose and a time so that his glory will be known in the world. And so once again, that goes back to it tests everything to Scripture. If a person is being glorified above God, then you know it's not real and it's not from the Holy Spirit. So test everything to Scripture and know that anything that you are able to do, any self-control that you have, any joy of the Lord that you have, any ability or gifting that you have in teaching or preaching, whatever, it's not yours. It is God's alone. And that's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. You have a power that you obtain as a believer. And that power only is obtained as a believer, which means that you have to have a relationship with God. You have to be able to have an identity in Christ. And that's our third hallmark is an identity. So you have belief and you have power to be sent, but to have any of that, you have to have an identity. And our identity is as children of God. We are chosen, we are saved, we are redeemed, and we are in an active, living relationship with a living Lord and King. As a follower of Jesus, that is your identity. Your life's been changed. The person that you were is no longer the person that you are, and you're constantly uh, being sanctified and growing closer to God and being more like Him. And if that's not you, if you're someone that maybe you've lived your entire life and, and it's been just the same thing constantly, maybe you grew up in the church, maybe you didn't, and now you're just you're saying, oh man, I attend church, I'm totally cool, but you've never had any change, any transformation in your heart and in your life. There's no difference. People can't look at you and say, man, there's something about you. Then you need to question whether or not you actually know God because God says clearly that there is a change in our lives, radical transformation because we become more like him. And when you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, that is God who is working actively on your heart. And so that means you're going to be different. And you need to allow the Holy Spirit to work within you. Oftentimes we're deceived into thinking that we have a Christianity, whether it's through cultural means or whether it's through being raised in the church, parents. Maybe, yeah, maybe you've been running on your parents' faith. That's what I did for the whole first part of my life. I ran on my parents' faith thinking it was enough for me. But all it led to was a dead, fake Christianity that I thought I was living in a faith that didn't exist. And it led to a life that was ruled by sin and insecurity and fear. And that may be you today. Or maybe you're somebody that you've never even thought about being a Christian. Or maybe you've been thinking about it the last few weeks or months or years, and you're just mulling over in your head saying, this, this stuff sounds like it may be true and it sounds good, or, or maybe you just have no idea what to even think about it at all. Those could be any of you. And I only really have one question for, for anyone who hasn't committed their life to Christ. Do you want to? Do you want to? I mean, it's pretty awesome. I'm, I'm going to say it's pretty awesome. My life has been changed radically because of my commitment to Christ. And it's because we have the greatest gift we ever could. And that is hope and purpose. 
I'm not going to stand here and tell you that your life is going to be better and that things are going to completely improve or you're not going to experience hardship or pain. But we have something different. We have hope. We have hope that Jesus Christ died on the cross knowing that our sins have been paid for so that we can spend eternity with him. That this life is not all that there is. We have hope. In the midst of darkness, we have hope. And we have a purpose. We have a purpose to glorify God. It says uh, in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We have a purpose to glorify God. So no matter what you're going through, what God offers you is hope and purpose. I remember, like I said earlier, I wasn't a Christian when I was in high school, even though I grew up in a Christian home. And I remember my senior year, I really was struggling with just who I was. I was caught up in a lot of different things, and it was all about what do people think about me, what's my reputation, you know, all that stuff. Like, that was, that was what was important to me. And all that led me to was a dark place of depression my senior year of high school. And that really culminated one night when I nearly committed suicide. And the thing that changed that night from the path that I was on was really two things. One, I knew that my parents would be devastated and that they loved me. And I knew there was something different about my parents because they did follow the Lord. And I knew that... uh, before I did anything final, I had to at least talk to them. And so I went into their bedroom in the middle of the night, woke them up, and just kind of, you know, threw everything out there. You know, I was weeping. I was like, Dad, here's, here's the knife I was going to use. Like, this is where I'm at, and I don't know what to do. And I'll never forget the way my dad responded. See, I was expecting him to kind of flip out, right? To kind of be angry or, or to at least be a little panicky. I mean, that seemed to me like it was a natural response. And so I was kind of bracing for that. And all my dad did was, in the middle of the night, groggy, I just woke him up and then just, you know, emotionally vomited all over them. He just turned out of bed He looked at me, and he said, let's pray. And my mom came over, and and they just put their hands on me. He didn't try to, like, embrace me or hold me or anything. He just put his hand on my shoulder, and he prayed. And I'll never forget the prayer, which is the second thing that changed that night completely for me. He prayed, not that I wouldn't commit suicide, not that I would get over what I was struggling with. He just prayed that I would come to know Jesus in a personal way. That was it. That was all he prayed about. And then they went back to bed, and I, I went to bed, um, and, it, and it changed everything for me. I didn't become a Christian that night. I, I didn't give my life to Christ. But their response was so empowered by the Holy Spirit. In that moment, they knew exactly how to respond to be able to reach me the best. And the Holy Spirit spoke through them into my life. And then less than two years later, I came to a personal relationship with God. That night changed everything because of my parents being sent. 
And the Holy Spirit empowered them. And their belief was so confident and they knew the truth and they were able to speak it into my life. And I'm not going to say that you're not going to go through things still. Even in uh, fall 2017, just this past year, I was back in a place of depression. And if you've been in depression, you know you can't really get out of it on your own. Like it's, That's the whole point. Is It is just all-encompassing and there is just a darkness and you don't know what to do. And this is after I'm a believer. This world is broken. This world is corrupted by sin and so we will go through things. Your life is not going to be amazing just because you're a Christian. But there's a difference. There's a difference between that time when I was a senior and a different difference between last year. And it's because I have hope. I had hope in Jesus Christ that I have something beyond this. Even though I didn't know how I could get out of it, I didn't know how emotionally I could even climb my way out of bed, I knew that God was going to redeem me and he was going to bring me into eternity with him. And it may suck now, but I knew there was hope for tomorrow. And I had a purpose. And that's how I did get out of bed. Because when you're depressed, you don't want to get out of bed. You don't want to do anything. And I had a purpose, though, to glorify my king because he is greater than me. And so I was able to still, you know, go throughout my day and do what I needed to do as much as I could. And I know it was hard on people, especially those around me. My wife can attest to this. Uh, it was a struggle for me. It was a struggle for her. But we had hope and we had a purpose because that is what we offer when we give people the gospel is we are giving them a promise of hope and purpose that they have never had before, that we live in a world that is dark. It is filled with so much pain and suffering and darkness, and yet we have the light that can shine through it and pierce it. How can you not share that with everyone around you? If you have ever experienced anything at all in your life, any kind of trauma, heartache, hurt, pain, abuse, anything, you know what I'm talking about. You know the pain that's associated with that. You know how just dark it can be in that moment. And yet we have the ability to share hope with people. Are you going to really keep that to yourself just because you're afraid of what they may say or afraid of their response or maybe you're just insecure about your own faith, it doesn't matter because it's not about you. It's about God and the Holy Spirit working through the lives of people for radical change and transformation. So don't withhold this amazing gift that you have. Be a witness for it. You've experienced it yourself. You know what it is. And so tell people about it. Tell your family, your friends, your coworkers. Tell them what it is to have hope because that's what people are seeking. That's what they need in their life. And Jesus Christ is the only one that can do that. He's the only one that can deliver that to them. So you need to tell them. And that leads us to our fourth thing, our last hallmark, and that's action. It leads us to action. Acts 1, 9 through 11 
He says, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a, chi- and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So they're standing there on the hill. Jesus just told them, go be witnesses, right? And he's ascended into heaven. He's disappeared behind a cloud. And the apostles are just standing there just staring up. Probably jaw still on the ground, right? It's just an amazing moment. And then these two dudes show up right next to him. It's two angels. And they're like, guys, what are you doing? He said he's coming back. Don't you remember? He will return in the same way. He just told you what you need to do. Why are you wasting time? He's coming back. Go. Do what he just told you to do. You have a commandment. You have a mission, a purpose. Let's go. Let's do it. And so we see that we need to do things. And I see two, two uh, easy things to remember. Works of love and evangelism. Works of love is just doing stuff. Jesus did a lot during his ministry. He, he preached, he taught, he healed, he loved people, he served them. He did a lot. And, and he did it so that we can, you know, do exactly what he did. So that we can love and we can disciple and we can serve and do things for people. Because we're different. We should be different than the world. People should look on us and think there's something about them. In James 2, 15 and 17, it says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is it? So in the same way, faith by itself, if you don't have works, is dead. We have a lot of pain and heartache around us that we can do something about. And you can't save everyone. You can't do the physical needs of everybody. And that's not what I'm saying you do. But people are going to enter into your life at moments. God brings people into your life and you have the ability to be able to serve them in some way. And it's not that we even have a lot, but it doesn't take money. It doesn't take finances to do these things. It just takes loving someone, even if that's just listening to their story. Do something. Do a work of love so that people will see the compassion that we're led to by the Holy Spirit. Second thing is evangelism. And this is when we get into really the crux of what this verse is saying, that we are to be witnesses. Now a witness, if you think of like the courtroom, a witness is somebody, is somebody that has seen something or experienced something, heard something, and so they need to tell the court what it is, right? And so in the same way, we need to tell what we've experienced and seen and heard. There's five roles in evangelism. There's five roles, and you can check out 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 10 uh, for these roles and for evidence. But the, the roles are Father who chooses, Father God, he chooses, Jesus saves, 
the evangelist, the witness, is the one that brings the gospel, an external call to someone. The Holy Spirit gives power to the witness to be able to do so and works internally on the heart of the person hearing it. And then the listener, the person who hears the message, has a response. Are they going to have faith? Are they going to repent? These five roles are clearly in Scripture, and all of them need to be present. And that's the way that God in his sovereignty mandated it, is that these five roles are necessary. And so without one, the others don't happen, and it's because God wants it that way. And so who are us to question the way that God has made it? And so that means there has to be somebody evangelizing. There has to be someone witnessing, telling people about God so that they may hear. Romans 10, 14, and 15, it says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Acts 1.8 is not just for those guys on the hill. It's not just for the early church. It is for all the church, all time. We have been sent by God so that we may preach, so that people may hear, so that they may believe. That is why we are here. That is our purpose is to glorify him and make him known to all people. And God makes it so easy on us. He makes it so easy because his call, his gospel call is already hitting every single you know, mark necessary for people to understand. It's intellectual because we have this book. We have this book that gives us his truth right here written down. So it hits us intellectually, it hits us emotionally because we're seeing the call and the experiences of all of us. Those of us who have already given our life to Christ, we have an experience that is going to hit the nerve in people's lives because they've also experienced the same things. And at the same time, God is calling them internally to a personal relationship. It's emotional. And it also hits the will. The will of people because God wants a response from people. He wants people to respond and answer to the call and say, I'm going to come to you, God. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Revelation twenty two seventeen, one of the very last things in the Bible, says the Spirit and the Bride, the Holy Spirit, God, and the Bride, the church, us, all of us, say, come. And let him who hears, come. And let him who is thirsty, Come and let him who desires take the water of life without price. We are called, we are sent to tell people to come to know God. So in conclusion, we are, we are to be a witness, to tell the truth that you have seen. Like I said earlier at the beginning, everything is tested according to Scripture, but... Don't be afraid of your life. Don't be afraid of the experiences that you have had because God is working within you and he's transforming you. He's showing you how you can show people what he does in the believer. Don't be afraid of your experience because experience is what people's going to relate to. So check with scripture. God doesn't act outside of it. 
but don't fear it. I know in my own life, as I mentioned earlier, it's been completely transformed, completely changed. And it will transform your life. And it will change your life. And it's not something that just happens the once, but it's something ongoing throughout the rest of your life. Because we're not perfect. We're always going to struggle with things. But God promises he will change you and he will transform you. And he will give a radical transformation that people will see and they will want and they will desire. Jesus has and he does and he will always act powerfully in you and in the church. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today and your word and and what you talk about in Acts, such a powerful book and a powerful, powerful message. And thank you so much that, that you change us, that you don't put all the weight and the pressure on us to be able to be this perfect image that we just can't be. It's impossible for us to be. And yet you come into our life and you make us more like you every single day because you love us and you want us to be able to glorify you. We thank you and we praise you. You are an amazing God and more than we deserve. And now as we transition into a time of offering, I thank you for the transformative grace that you put on our, on our hearts and our uh, wallets. That's one of the hardest things that we can uh, give up oftentimes is our money, the standard of living that we want, and yet you have called us to glorify you in all things. So we thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to give and the opportunity to be able to bless others through our generosity. We thank you and we praise your name. Amen.